Well, it's not very often at Auckland EV you'll get a sermon titled 10 Principles for Living Well. Uh, lots of churches I've been around to that often speak through things like seven ways to be a better husband. Um, but the, the, the way we've come to this sermon title today is really driven from what God has to say to us in his word. One of the most basic questions of human life is this. How do I make decisions? What values and principles and actions should shape the way I live? One of the great glories of being human is our ability to make decisions that aren't just controlled by instinct. We can choose to go against our instinct or go with it. We can choose to make rational decisions, logical ones or irrational ones. But what I'm interested in thinking about today is, what is it that shapes the way I make decisions? I think there are three principles, roughly, that we can think through on this. The first one is this. What is it that shapes the way we make decisions? One, is it law? You know, principles from outside ourselves that set the regulations of how we live, like kind of society's rules and regulations. That, that's how society operates, right? Laws which protect us, set up boundaries and, and social norms around us. They make life livable, like a machine that kind of fits together well with cogs and gears that just mean we don't run life off the rails, We protect one another. Moral rules, cultural conventions, traditions, peer expectations. Many of us choose to shape our life by rules, external to us, laws. But for others of us, it's not the law that shapes our life. In fact, it's the polar opposite. It's the rejection of the law. It's what I call liberty. Some of us shape our lives by breaking free from the constraints around us. We'll make decisions by going, well, what does the law say? I'm going to do the opposite. I'm not going to be constrained by what it says. I want to live my life my way. I want to be an individual. We don't want to conform to the laws of those around us, so we shape the decisions of our life around the outcomes that break the law, that that set up really our own law. The third way I think we can kind of do this, we can make decisions is what I call license. Now, license isn't just choosing the opposite of the law. It's kind of like total rejection if the law even exists. It's doing whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want, because, well, it's really up to me. Life's just going to take me wherever it goes. I kind of don't make that many decisions. I just throw caution to the wind and let the wind carry me wherever. Who cares? You know, just live a little. Now, obviously, there are different approaches to life. There are different ways to kind of make decisions that will take our life in different directions. And not every decision is going to be the same. Some decisions will be shaped by law, some by liberty, some by license, right? But what's life with God like? It's not going to neatly fit into any of those three categories, but what is life like? How is it shaped? How do you make decisions when you've met the true and living God? How does meeting God shape the way you think and live? Well, as we open chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, we get to the beginning of Moses' second speech. And this is the big one. It goes from chapter 5 through to chapter 28. Um, If you think my talks are long, be thankful. Moses' one was 17,496 words. Roughly, for me speaking, at the rate I speak, that's about three hours. So it's a long talk, right? People are standing in the desert listening to Moses just on this one for close to three hours at least. So here they are on the border of this promised land that God has promised they can enter into. 
about to receive the blessings that God had in store. And Moses tells them that as you live on the edge, on the edge of this promised land, this is how you need to live. This is how to live in relationship with God. This is how to live as people who've met the true and living God. And it's good. And it should shape your life. Deuteronomy 5, verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and the laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The first thing we kind of see as Moses opens this second speech is that life with God is a life of obedience. Moses is about to spell out the decrees and the laws that God gave Israel. The decrees and the laws, remember, that would make them the envy of all the other nations around them. Remember Moses' words last week, Deuteronomy 4.8? What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? It's no surprise that the morals and laws of the Western world are based on the Judeo-Christian heritage, is it? If God's laws are good, then you'd imagine that lots of people would take them on, kind of as the way we think generally. And that's kind of what you see today. Society in general says murder is wrong. Kind of has a view of adultery as not being that, that good. There's a whole heap of things that we get here because... The world recognises that God's way of living, in some ways, is actually good. So Moses says, learn them. Follow them, then do them. Life with God is a life of obedience. But not because he's some harsh dictator telling us what exactly you must do and why, because he's kind of just trying to squish you down with his thumb. Because he's God and he's good. He's the one who made us, and he wants us to live the best way possible. But here we are, three and a half thousand years later, sitting in the cinema with comfy seats and a big screen and warm kind of, you know, it's cool outside, but it's warm in here. We're kind of different to Israel, who were gathered on the edge of that promised land, aren't we? Many of us here would call ourselves Christians, but not because God saved us from Egypt. In fact, not many of you will have Jewish heritage. Not many of you will say that your, your ancestors were saved out of slavery in Egypt. But here we sit. But we can say we're in a similar position because we have been saved from a bondage that's far greater than slavery in Egypt. Far deeper. The bondage to serve ourselves we've been freed from. The bondage to rebel against God. The bondage to sin. If you're a Christian, you've been freed from this by what Jesus has done. And God says because of what he has done, life with God is to be a life of obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments, right? Any claim to know God that isn't expressed in the obedience of God can't be true knowledge of him, can it? If you're saying, yeah, yeah, I know God, but then you live, and I trust God, but then you live totally different, well then, do you really know who He is? He's the creator of all things, that we're responsible to Him? Let me ask you this morning, if you love Jesus, is your life marked by an obedience to God? 
You don't need to be perfect. But is obedience to God shaping the way you live? Do others around you see you as different? As following the God of the universe? Life with God is a life of obedience. Now when you think through the Ten Commandments, just think to yourself for a second, what do you think most people get wrong? I reckon one of the things is that we just don't know what the Ten Commandments are. Uh, You know, we call ourselves Christian, and he's one of the foundational kind of um, great commands we want to celebrate throughout the Bible. Yet we don't actually know what they are. In our Connect group this week on Wednesday, I asked people, write out the the Ten Commandments. Let's see how we go. Um, And everyone had a crack, and some people, I think, got all of them. Some were just in the wrong order. Um, But I couldn't even get all of them. And I've been studying this all week. I've been looking at this passage, it's round in my head, and on, on Wednesday I couldn't I couldn't even tell you all of them in, in the right order. But I don't reckon that's the biggest mistake we make when it comes to the Ten Commandments. I actually think there's a bigger one than forgetting some of them. There's a more fundamental and foundational thing that people get confused about what the Ten Commandments are about. And really it's this how the Ten Commandments relate to us. If you go and did a survey of the place of the Ten Commandments in the life of the Christian, you ask some people at church, what's the point of the Ten Commandments? Often people will say, look, the Ten Commandments are there so we can try to please God. We can try and live a life that will be good enough for God. And that way we can be kind of good enough for Him. We can get to heaven by obeying Him. You ask someone on the street, how do you think you get to heaven? And they'll probably say, well, you'd be a good person. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie. They'll recite some of the Ten Commandments to you. But they're using the Ten Commandments wrongly. We can use them to get into a relationship with God. To start the relationship with God. But that's totally and absolutely wrong. The Ten Commandments were never given by God to get us into a relationship with Him. Never. Look with me at Deuteronomy 5, verse 6. This is what God says. This is how he starts the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When we read the Bible, right, we just can't take a part of the Bible, pull it out and apply it straight to us. We've been looking at this over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we, We can't do that without considering where it fits in the big picture of what's going on. And even more than that, without seeing how it fits in exactly what's happening in the passage. See, Moses reminds Israel that God had already saved them. They'd been brought out of slavery. They'd been declared to be God's people. Exodus 19, if you want to check it out later. Obeying the Ten Commandments did not make them God's people. Did the Israelites save themselves from Egypt by keeping the Ten Commandments? No. In 5 and 6, they were brought out. The kind of verb there, if you're into grammar, is a passive verb. It's something that happened to them. They had nothing to do with it. They were brought out. As the Israelites listen to God's instruction or law, they've got to remember that they are already saved. The Ten Commandments are for them to know how to live as God's saved people. Not in order to be saved, but how you live in response to a God who has saved you. Almost 12 years ago next month, 
on the 7th of July, 2001, a contract was established. It was a covenant between two people. Uh, Sarah and I were married. I I remember the day. The date's written on the inside of my ring, so I don't forget. I can take it off and check. The 7th of the 7th. It's good. Tip for guys getting married, write the date on the inside of your ring uh, so you don't forget. It's important. But when I got married, I entered into an agreement that was kind of legal. And that's what a covenant is. It's kind of a formalized agreement. When when someone's married, they make vows. They're kind of the conditions of the the covenant, of the promise, of the contract that's, that's taking place. If I remember correctly, I said, I, Rowan, take you, Sarah, to be my wife, according to God's holy ordinance, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow and promise. That's what I said to her. That's the the promise, the relationship, the, the covenant that I entered into when I got married. And it meant there'd be ways that I would now live because I was married. I wouldn't go off with anyone else. I would love Sarah only as my wife. I would love her for better, for worse. When we've got money, when we didn't have money. When she's in great fitness and health. When she's spewing in a bucket, I'd be there alongside her. Uh, I'd love her when there's money in the bank and when there's not, when there's romantic holidays and good dinners and when we're just bored and tired and stressed. But that's the promise I made. That, but because I made that promise, it defined the way my life was. As a couple in a covenant, there are ways that I live because I'm in that covenant. It's the same too with, with God's people. God saved them out of Egypt and then said, as my saved people, this is how you're to live. But just living like I was married, right? Just imagine, I wasn't actually married. I hadn't made the promises. I had really no relationship with Sarah. But say I just tried to live like I was married to Sarah. You know, I'd rock along and just kind of open the car door for her. And she'd be like, who are you, freak? And then I'd like, you know, walk into the house and kind of sit down to have dinner. And she'd be calling the police, going, there's some crazy guy. And what, what is going on here? You know, just by acting like I'm married doesn't make me married. You know, there's a prior relationship that has to happen. I actually had to ask Sarah to marry me. I actually had to know her. Well, it's the same thing with God. He saved them. God took them out of Israel. He made them his people and he said, I love you and I will look after you as my people. Then this is how you live as God saved people. Just following the Ten Commandments can't make you a Christian. It can't even make you a Jew. No, you need to trust in what God has done first. But for you and I, 3,000 years later, how do we relate to that? Again, God didn't bring us out of Egypt. Not many of us here were Jews. So how do these Ten Commandments apply? Do they apply? Should they apply? Well, before we obey God, we need to recognize what God has done for us. That before we did anything, Jesus died in our place. Remember Moses' words last week? You were there. Remember Paul's words? Jesus' death was your death. Jesus died in your place. His death was concerning you. When he died on that cross, it was for the things you and I have done so that we could be in right relationship with God. He is the one that restores our relationship with him. 
No matter if you call yourself a Christian, an atheist, an agnostic, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Hare Krishna. The claim of the Bible is that Jesus died in your place. The claim of the Bible is that you were there. And if that relationship comes first, if, if you acknowledge that Jesus died in your place, if you put your life in his hand, then that will shape the rest of your life. It's kind of like the start of a promise, a contract, a, a covenant. And the rest of your life will then be shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus. I want to ask you here today, is the death and resurrection of Jesus central to your life? Is that what kind of shapes the way you live? Or is your life kind of more like a, just a to-do list of right and wrong, the things I've got to do, the things I, I haven't done? Would you honestly say that Jesus' death and resurrection is totally and utterly shaping the way you live? Is that what's affecting your values, your, your morals, your, the way you think, the way you act, what you say, how you spend your time, how you spend your money? Is the centre of all that Jesus' death and resurrection for you? The fact that Jesus has done it all for us, that he saved us, that there's nothing that we can do to fix our relationship with God, means all we can do is trust him. All we can do is put our life in his hands. I can't obey any set of laws in order to be good enough for him. But Jesus did, and he did it for us. Is the death and resurrection of Jesus shaping your life? Well, for many of us who kind of call ourselves Christian, it's easy to kind of stand back at this point and go, yeah, I can't say I'm a Christian, that, I, that Jesus' death and resurrection, it, it, it does kind of shape my life. It's easy to kind of have a big picture view and say, yeah, I do trust Jesus. But I wonder whether it's actually as we get close up and look under a microscope at the way we live, as we look at the fine detail, that we'll see whether that really is true. Uh, I'm pretty much a big picture person. Sarah is pretty much a detailed person. We're quite different. She's much better looking. Um, she's much smarter than me. She's got better, better marks at school. Actually, at Bible College, we both did Greek together in the first year, and every Greek exam, Sarah beat me by three marks. I was like, what is with that? Anyway, I was better at essays, but anyway, and, and maps, but we'll talk about that later. Um, so I'm kind of this big picture person who, who wants to know why things happen. I need to understand why they happen in order to do something. I need to see the front picture of, of where we're kind of going. Whereas Sarah, she's great at kind of looking at the details. And I wonder if many of us, just like being big picture people with God. Kind of going, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, I trust Jesus. Yeah, I, I might, the, the, his death and resurrection, it kind of shapes my life, and then you move on. Rather than being like looking at the details in front of us. See, it's right to fix our eyes on Jesus, but if we never look down in front of us, we'll trip over the detail. That's what Sarah is so great for me, and she'll be like, that's great, Rowan, you might want to kind of see church go here, but how are we going to do kids' church next week? Or she might be like, okay, that'd be a great idea to go away, but who's going to look after the kids? I'm like, oh, yeah. Man, I organised a weekend away and hadn't thought through it yet. So details are important because they really show us whether our eyes truly are fixed on, on what's going forward and what's going to happen. The question is, what are the details? 
How do we shape our life? How do we make decisions that show that the death and resurrection of Jesus is what captivates us? Well, some would say the Ten Commandments. Should we obey the Ten Commandments? Are they for today? Well, here's my little controversial thing I'll say. I don't think the Ten Commandments are for today at all. We don't need to obey them in any way. There you go. Great, we can all go home. What's the point of doing this? But, on the other hand, they are so basic to seeing what God is like, to seeing the way God has loved us, that for someone to know God and live differently, really, you can't do. See, as you look at the Ten Commandments, as you see the way God wants us to live now, we see them fulfilled in Jesus. The Ten Commandments don't ever, they never kind of showed people how to be saved. They showed people how you should live as God's saved people. And then when Jesus came along, he said, I have fulfilled these. You see them complete in me. As you trust me, it's as if they've been done in me. So do we just walk away, throw our hands up in the air and go, no, throw them out, we don't need to do anything? No. Because Jesus has died in our place, because God has saved us, We use these kind of basic rules, these basic laws, these basic principles, if you want, to understand how to live well, how to understand the God who made us. Well, what I'm going to do now is to go quite quickly through the Ten Commandments and kind of map out some of this detail that will help us think, how am I living? But keep thinking through. They only make sense as we remember Jesus has already saved us. So, Deuteronomy 5, verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. There's only one God who is God, and he's the God of the universe. There's not a range of gods. That means we are to serve the true and living God. His claim is absolute. There is no other. There can only be one absolute ruler, right? And so often... We go back to putting ourselves in the position of God. I want to run my life my way. We make decisions that kind of are more based around pleasing me than pleasing God. We make decisions that are about pleasing others because we care what others think because we want others to think highly of us and that's our most important kind of principle. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. None. How are you going at being ambitious to serve God only, to living a life with an audience of one. God's not after people who are lukewarm, half-hearted, serving you know, God for a bit, other things for a bit. He's the true and living God. He made the world and he made you and he says, this is the best way to live. Put me first. You have to be crazy to trust anyone else, that's what I think. Me, the ruler of my life? How's that worked out before for you, Roman? Deuteronomy 5, verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You can't know God 
and worship him through some other means. You can't make your own religion and say, yeah, I'm honoring God. I like to think of God as. He says, no idols. I've, I've spoken my word to you. I am here. Hear me. Jeremiah 5, 11. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his, his name. Now, immediately when I read that, I kind of go, yeah, you know, it means we've got to not swear using Jesus' name. Like you hit your, your hammer on your thumb, hit your thumb with a hammer, yeah, and it hurts, and you say, Jesus, right? He's not just saying that. Now, as a side note, why is it that when people swear, they use Jesus' name? Or they, they say God? Honestly, it struck me the other day, I was walking across a traffic, uh, a traffic set of traffic lights, and a car came through, and this car kind of sped around, and a lady goes, oh, God. Like, why didn't she say Buddha or Allah? Why did she pick God? My gut is that he is the true and living God. Why do people cry out to God? Well, because he made us. But God's saying, be very careful how you treat me. Not just in the way you speak. In the way you act. If you're a Christian and you are united to Christ, you're an ambassador for God. So the way you live reflects on the name of God. What you say, what you do, what you think. So don't stand as a person of God, saying you trust Him and yet live differently. I used to listen to a band that's quite old called Desi Talk in the 90s that many people heard of them. And there was a quote on the album at the start, just before this song called What Will People Think? And it said, The biggest cause of atheism in this world is people who acknowledge with their lips but deny their lifestyle. Don't bring God's name down. Verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, you shall not do any work, neither you, your son or daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, nor any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that the manservant and, man, and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty and outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. It's interesting how detailed he had to be there. (laughs) What we're like in terms of needing to know the fine nitty-gritty. I'll rest, but my slaves won't. What's really interesting, this is the only commandment of the ten that is not reiterated in the New Testament. This is the only commandment of the ten that is not saying, yes, we must kind of live the same way. Jesus comes along and says, no, it's fulfilled in me. So the purpose of the Sabbath was to reflect on the rest God was giving them. The rest that they would get as they entered into this promised land, rest from their enemies. The, The rest was found in God and was the action of God. So the Sabbath was actually not just for them. It was the way to worship God, to remember that you were there because of what he had done. But today, our rest is not once a week. It's in Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he he bought rest for us. If you trust in him, then you are now at rest, partially until his return, and then fully when he comes back. So the way we kind of express the Sabbath today is to look to Jesus and go, There is my rest. There is where I find God looking after me, God saving me, God providing for me. And 
kind of permeates every day of our life, doesn't it? Shouldn't it? Now, I'm not saying there aren't good principles, that having a day off is, is a good thing. I think it is a great thing. I think we should make sure you have time off to rest. But it's not a command we need to obey. Verse 15. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and mother. Depending where you are in life, that command has a little bit of a different ring, doesn't it? If you're living under the roof of, of your parents, what it's kind of saying is that you want to be honouring them. You want to be listening to what they say. It's funny that God gave families to remind us of Him. Parents remind us of God, right? God is called God the Father. We, we, we treat Him as our Father, as Jesus does. And so we need to make sure we honour Him. Parents chose us before we chose them. We had nothing to do with it, right? They brought us into the world, and so we're responsible to them. See, families should remind us of the responsibility we have to God, that He is our Father. Remind us of that relationship. So we should, therefore, reflect and consider the obedience of God in shaping the way we love our families. Notice it's not honour provided they live up to your expectations. The way I think through it is, how do I love my parents in a way that on that last day, when all things are before God, when he sees the way we've lived, brings them glory and honour? Sometimes it will mean doing what they say. Other times it will mean not doing what they say. Deuteronomy 5.17 You shall not murder. Now notice here, it's, it's murder, it's not kill. Um, killing seemed to be different than murder. Uh, it was allowed in war and in, in capital punishment. Uh, but murder is just um, taking someone out right there and then. Um, killing seems to happen in that context of, of war. And it's pretty clear, right? You don't need much explanation on that. But Jesus kind of knocks it up a step, doesn't he? When, when he kind of applies it, he says, anyone that, that thinks hateful thoughts is guilty of murdering someone. It's totally unacceptable for someone who knows God. If, if you know God's kindness to you, of what he's done for you, how can you hate someone? Do you not realize how you have wronged God? How much you have hurt him? Yet he loves us nonetheless. Now I'm sure there's many of us here that have had awful things happen to them in their life. And humanly speaking, you'd have every reason to say, yes, I, to I totally understand wanting to hate people. But it's as we look at the God who loves us, at his son dying for us, in my place, while I hated him, while I wanted to live a life that was totally against him, while I was doing everything in my power to rule my life my own way, Jesus died. That's what helps me to trust the God of the Bible. He loved us nonetheless. It should affect the way we treat others. Is there anyone you hate? Maybe you need to do business with God. Verse 18. You shall not commit adultery. Sex is to be used in marriage. Not abused and turned into something else. Uh, is your life shaped by the obedience of God? 
Are you a one-woman man or a one-man woman if you're married? Has God's gift, has him saving you so impacted you that you want to say, yes, I'll obey you in this? This is what life looks like. It's shaped by if, I, if I'm in relationship with the God of the universe, and it's good. In Australia, um, probably five or six years ago, the government did a study of the kind of best way for the family unit to be. The secular study, and it came out in the end, the best place to raise a child is within committed relationship of one man and one woman in marriage for life. You know, it shouldn't surprise us that God's way of living is the best way of living. Yet so often we're tempted to take our eyes from him. To look at fake images on screens. To find other things we want to worship. To seek satisfaction outside ourselves. So the reason marriage works is because you're honouring God first. If it's just about two people, it'll end pretty quick. As the love goes away and as you kind of the emotions are gone and it's hard work, you just give up. But if you're doing it because you love God, then there's a perfect third party that bonds the two together. You're serving God because this is the best way to live, because He's saved you, because He loves you. So keep trusting Him. And if you're not married, sex is for marriage. How far can you go? That's the question, right? That's the wrong question. You want to try and go no far. Physical intimacy is built for marriage. So if you're thinking this is a great person to marry, this is someone I could commit to for the rest of my life, this is someone who is like God, faithful, who loves Him, then explore what it would be like to get married. Talk through those things and commit because sex is to be used in marriage. I was speaking to someone recently, it's about a year ago, and they said, they were a Christian, they said, for me, um, in my circle of friends, circle of Christian friends, I was the only one in that circle who thought sex should be solely for marriage. Christians? Serious? This whole try before you buy attitude, it's it's what society says, it's, it's wrong. And for those of you who are married... Is there someone in your head that you're thinking would be a possibility? What do you think right now? Is there someone that kind of pops up in your head that makes you go, oh, if I was going to run off with someone, it would be. If there's a name, you need to go and talk to someone. You haven't done uh, committed adultery yet, <laughs> but names will come into our heads. Things will happen. It's happened with me. It's happened with others in terms of thinking through people about going, what if I was with this person? What if life was different? Stop. If you're in that place today, go talk to someone. Go talk to a friend. Talk to your growth group leader, your connect group leader. Come chat with me. But do something. Don't just continue. I spent an hour and a half on Facebook last night with a mate in Australia whose best mate, whose best mate's wife just found out that he had had a baby from someone else and the baby was just born a year ago. He hadn't told anything. There'd been an affair. Don't do it. Jeremy 5.19 You shall not steal. You know, knowing what God has given us, how crazy is it when we go, oh, I need to get more than what God's given me. If we trust God that he's given us everything, that he's made the world and that he gives us every need like he promises... Why do we steal? 
Why, why do we download movies off the internet that aren't ours? Why do we use software that we haven't paid for? Because I need it. I need to write this thing and I don't have the money. Maybe you don't. Stop stealing. Is your life shaped by obedience to God in the way you pay your taxes, in the way you, you treat sick days, in the way that you use movies? Deuteronomy 20, 5 verse 20. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. This really hit me this week. I'm like, sure, we all know we shouldn't lie, right? Absolutely. God's been truthful to us. He's kept his promises to us. So will we, should we speak untrue things about others? It hit me in the fact that I just noticed, and Sarah helped me notice, that I repeatedly said to her that I'd be home at a certain time. But every time I do it, I'm late. And as I was preparing this, I'm like, you hypocrite, Rowan. That's actually, my word is not my word. I'm not deliberately going, oh, I want to lie against you, but I'm not keeping my word. How can we be trusted when we speak the gospel if we're untrustworthy in other things? Is your, is your life shaped by an obedience to God? And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his maidservant or manservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't you find yourself wanting to keep up with the Joneses? Looking next door, looking at what someone else has. If only I had what they have. That desire to just have the way they've got it. Whether it's time, whether it's a husband or a wife that does more chores than your husband or wife. Whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend that just seems to be able to know how to love in a way that you'd love them to love you. Whether it's just having time. Having more time and thinking, oh, I want what they have and it's not ours. When you know what Jesus has done for you, when you truly know it, when you fix your eyes on the fact that Jesus died for us, what else do we need? How stupid am I when I look at a car going down the street and think, oh, that'd be cool. That's okay to enjoy cars, but to really want it. When I was a kid, I used to keep a scrapbook of Porsches. I can tell you kind of every model from about 1980 to 1996. I can tell you exactly what, what things are there, what things I liked about them. And, and, I, and I can tell you what price, the best deal. I used to cut pictures out and stick them in. I realized that's an issue, right? At some times, I think I was loving Porsches more than I was excited that God had saved me. Now, don't, don't hear me saying you can't have hobbies and interests. Don't. I'm not saying that at all. But if you're living, if you think, I'll be content when blank then there's an issue. Jesus has died for you. Your death was his death. He stood before God and faced the penalty for what you and I did. He took it on himself and now offers us relationship with the creator of the universe. You are called heirs with with Christ, co-heirs with Christ. You will inherit this world. You will rule this world forever. What else could you want? Everything else is just like a blink of the eye. See, God isn't just interested in the outward observance. God wants to see our hearts love Him. 
He wants to see us as people who've been captivated by Jesus. And so live lives in response to him. What's, what's going on in your heart? Is your life shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus? Or are you just trying to obey some rules to put on an outward front so life looks like you're doing everything properly? Like we've got it all sorted, nothing to see here, friends. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. I feel the temptation, we all feel the temptation to look better than we are. Friends, we're sinners. We live for ourselves. We want to serve ourselves. We want to put ourselves first. Yet Jesus died for us. God knows our hearts. He sees why we're doing the things we're doing. None of us have it all together. So stop pretending. Share how you're going with your friends and people in your connect group. Share together. Don't don't try and go, oh, look, I've, I've got everything right. Confess to one another. It's not like, surprise, surprise, I'm a sinner. <laughs> We're all sinners. It's nothing to do with how good I am, but how good Jesus was. In Mark chapter 12, this man runs to Jesus. He wants to know how to live his life, what he must do to have eternal life. And he says, what's the most important commandment, Jesus? Tell me. Because you know there are 613 commandments. Moses got the ten, ten was spoken to everyone, then Moses went up the mountain 40 days, kind of got all the commandments of the law through, uh, through there and came back down. And so this is what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. With every fiber of your being, be someone who is shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus of what God has done. We're going to hear more of that next week as Ray comes to speak. We're going to think through what it means to live as someone who loves the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. But there's one little last principle I want to show you. The Ten Commandments are about love. They're about loving God vertically, and they're about loving others. The first four talk through how we're to love God. No other gods beside me, no idols, do I misuse my name? And remember the Sabbath, for I have saved you. They're all about God. And the rest, the kind of next six, all about how we love others. And the key principle to pick up is, you cannot divorce your love of God for your love of others. You cannot come along to church and think, yeah, church is just about me and God. It's not. If you want to worship God, you need to build one another up. You need to love one another the way Jesus loved us. It's like the two sides of a coin. You can't say, which is the most important side of the coin? Is it the heads or the tails? It's a coin. You can't love God if you don't love others. You can't love others if you don't love God. So friends, keep coming to church. Keep going to connect groups. Keep thinking through how you can shape your lives because Jesus died for us. As you love one another, and as you love God. If you miss church, it's not just you that's missing out. It's everyone else who misses out on your encouragement, on your love, on your being here. I'm not just saying because I'm the pastor and I care about numbers. Who cares about numbers? <laughs> we care about people. I want to see my brothers and sisters built up. I want to see them encouraged so that we don't wander. 
You know how easy it is to wander? So I spent an hour and a half last night on Facebook talking to a mate about. Is your heart and mind and soul shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus?